0: This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. This show's about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some killer content that we don't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. And if you're new to the show, but you want to know more about what we teach here at the AOC live programs here in L.A., Check out the Art of Charm toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of fundamentals, body language, nonverbal communication, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, eye contact, business networking, negotiation, et cetera, et cetera. And we have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California, theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp for details, or call us or email me, Jordan, at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here at the Art of Charm. Today, we're talking with Tim Larkin. He's a former military intelligence officer. He was part of a group that redesigned how special operations personnel trained for close combat. He's got a 25-year career. He's trained people in 52 countries, and he's got something called target focus training that everybody from military special warfare to law enforcement teams, celebrities, business leaders, I hate calling it self-defense because it's kind of more than that, but we'll see here on the show. He's fond of saying violence is really the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. And we're gonna to talk today about the intersection between violence and culture, and uh, we're gonna talk about how to understand asocial violence cues that you can recognize. And why watching self-defense training or videos from a or going to a dojo or MMA gym is actually the worst way to choose a self-defense system, why the best information on how to survive violence comes from the worst parts of society, and last but not least, what violence and socializing Have in common. So enjoy this one with Tim Larkin. You said that you actually got a a really interesting lesson on violence from your South Boston grandpa. Is that something that fits here or is it something that's a little bit like, is that extraneous at this point?
1: Well, you know, he basically at a very early age, you know, said something. My grandfather was a big uh, fan of boxing and he used to teach us boxing, you know, me and my cousins at a very young age. You know, he was teaching us, you know, from four to like seven, you know, I was learning how to box all the time and, and we were listening to all his boxing stories and he was teaching us. He goes, okay, boys, you know, this is what you do in the ring. And he says, especially, you know, when you get in this particular position and then he stopped because my grandfather, you know, he lived through the depression. He was a jazz musician, you know, became a very successful real estate guy after, but through the jazz years, he basically played in a lot of tough clubs and he had to fight a lot. And, uh, he grew up, you know, fighting and he, made it very clear to us. He just kind of stopped. And here we are, these little kids, you know, <laughs> and he says, points to the window. He said, now, boys, what I'm teaching you is for the ring. He said, but if anybody, anybody ever tries to attack you out here, and he pointed to the street, he said, this is what you do. And then he's just started to show us basically, you know, injury strikes, you know, how to hit somebody, you know, he goes, they're going to tell you this is cheating, He goes, but there's no cheating on the street. He said, people will really try to hurt you bad. And I don't want you boys to ever feel that. So don't let anybody do this. And he just came because he, you know, he had had friends murdered. He had lived through some really tough times and he had seen people that didn't understand that they were facing a social violence and he saw them killed. Now, I learned this before he died. That's what he meant at that age. It was a little rough for me to kind of get where he was going, but it always stuck with me. It was one of those things that got me on this track early on to say, oh, there's difference between what I think, quote unquote, is violence. You know, at six years old, I wasn't being able to afford it that way. But there's a difference between the sport that I'm doing right now and if somebody's really trying to hurt me. There's two types of information I need to know. That was kind of probably the the path that set me on. I had no idea it would ultimately be. You know, something that I based my whole career on. That, that was it at such a young age. And my, my grandfather was a really, really interesting guy. And I learned an awful lot of things from him. But that idea of a, a differentiation between uh, agreed upon rules and then when all outliers are there. And in business, it's the same thing, you know. In a very controlled environment, you can make some predictions. But when you go out in the real world and you have to deal with all these outliers, you know, it's a very different world that you have to operate in. It's just, it's always held really good because the more I'm comfortable in the uncomfortable world of the outliers, the easier it is for me to navigate my life.
0: Yeah, sure. Your bio, of course, says America's leading pro-victim rights and personal safety advocate, but it's kind of like, nobody's advocating in the other direction,
1: are they? They're not directly advocating, but, um their stances and the uh, results of some of the things that they uh, that they put into law absolutely you know have that effect right with my books and everything and, and uh, my speaking engagements at, at a uh, fifty thousand foot level of really just defining for people what is something you have to deal with and what is something that you don't have to deal with that's kind of it so there's not a Person, obviously, it would be ridiculous that anybody would be working against people and say, Hey, I want more violence to happen to, to victims, but it goes across all demographics. Nobody gets a pass, regardless of your political, you know, stances. So it's not that it's just, well, it's it's like I tell people right now, you know, if you just get in your car and you're driving down the street and uh, there's a line in the road and you stay on your side and your assumption is that the other driver coming the other way is going to stay on his side. And What happens is that works when there's that you know societal agreement that's going on. But what people find out is, as soon as a guy just wants to come over to your lane and go head on into you because he wants to, you realize that I have been basing my whole well being on a painted line. You know, basically, it's just paint. There's nothing there, and that's essentially what's happening. The questions, like you started out with, really only come from say, the Western or European cultures, meaning very law-specific. When I go to South America, when I go to Asia, when I go to, um, you know, parts of Africa, these people are living day in and day out with the reality of violence. And their questions to me are more matter-of-fact. They want to actually know how to actually employ the tool, how to use it correctly. They already understand. I don't have to explain for them, you know, when this would ever be useful to them. They understand the difference between antisocial aggression and asocial violence, you know, when, when your life is actually on the line because they're in a uh, situation in their countries where they get exposed to that every day. And it's fascinating. It's just a very fascinating, you know, I change my speaking emphasis, you know, uh, and, and bullet points and everything depending on what part of the world I'm in because I know what's important to that particular part of the world. You know, how familiar are they with violence? To us, it's still that unthinkable black swan event for the most part here in the United States. Not as much as people think. For me, it's a fascinating subject. I've been able to have a really interesting career with it. And the challenge is to be able to talk about it without sounding like a sociopath. Like I'm advocating violence so that I'm advocating that. And that's the line I have to walk. And it's a it's a really challenging line. And sometimes, you know, it gets me at odds with people where you get kicked out of countries. Yeah. Like I said, I have had a 20-some-odd year history of doing this and bring up the subject. And to me, it's never something that is uh, always interesting that the reaction people have to the topic. And a lot of them have never really thought about the topic, even though it's something that is potentially the biggest game changer in your life. The reason I love to do shows like yours is because most people don't know about me. You know, most of my clients, it's a 70-30 split. 70% of the people come to me after the fact and they seek me out. You know, they seek me out after violence has already happened to them. They don't want it to happen. They survived it. They don't want it to happen again, and they want that. Thirty percent of my clients basically have not had an incident, and they're either doing it for preventative or they somehow heard me speak or something and were interested to take action prior to anything happen. Like, like your listeners, to again, I want to share great information also about the business stuff and whatever else and all that. But you know, when you ask me what's the biggest takeaway, it's hopefully it's provoking somebody who's maybe never thought about this or dismissed it because they thought there was either nothing they could do about it or it was just, you know, too much of a, a, an overwhelming subject to actually show them that, hey, it's just knowledge that you don't have. It's a, actually a very straightforward uh, set of instructions. You do not have to become, you know, some super ninja to actually live a life that can minimize the chance that violence enters it. But it's much better to have thought about this prior to anything ever happening to you because you end up making much better decisions.
0: That definitely makes sense because you teach a framework that teaches people how to engage in self defense that's not based on sports. This is like the original reality based right martial arts or whatever it's called right reality based fighting system is that what it's called
1: yeah and that's what it is and i mean and again it it can enhance anybody like i I have uh, lots of friends in the martial arts i'm i'm here I'm based out of Vegas. my training center is literally across the street from the most popular MMA uh, training center in Vegas, which houses most of the top UFC guys. It's it's an awesome place. Uh, My friend owns it, and um, I go over there. They have a great uh, workout facility there, and I love it over there, and it's really cool. Guys like that come to me because they've got great skill sets on dealing with a competition based situation. And what I can do is I can take all that great competition training that they've had, and then I can put this template over them to teach them how they can. Take useful stuff from what they have and what works out on the street. So they don't make a mistake of trying to use a competition approach to a predator that's just trying to do violence. That to me is really interesting when I get to work with groups like that because it's there. Oftentimes, you know, reality fighting guys in my business, it's it's very, it's a very balkanized business and it it drives me crazy because, you know, some people try to say one thing is better than the other. Uh, which is absolute crap. I mean, competition is not designed for violence and violence has no place in competition. One is not better than the other. It's just, okay, when do I need this tool? I need my competition tool if I'm going to be competing and I get to pit skill against skill and that's why we do that. But if I'm out on the street and my life is at risk, and people are, you know, bigger, faster, and stronger. There's more than one, and they're using weapons. I have to make sure that any action that I take gets a real result. I'm not trying to score a point. I'm actually trying to, you know, break a structure or a sensory system of the human body to save my life. And I need specific information on how to do that. So to me, it's always fun, you know, to, to kind of navigate those waters with everybody.
0: Right, because you're not looking for the armbar tap out. You're trying to get away slash disable somebody because. Because nothing changes your life faster than an act of violence or a severe act of violence. Right. It's our primal fear is having that happen to us or somebody close to us.
1: Uh, you know, I always tell people all the time, it's this 800-pound gorilla that's in the room, always. More so, like, like it's, it, men can suppress it a little bit more. Women, it's amazing. It's when I wrote the book, you know, and, and that was a big emphasis that, that Tony um, had, you know, from his takeaway from the training that I did with him, and then also goes
0: Tony Robbins. You yeah, him. yeah,
1: he was he was big on saying you, you got your first book, you got to make sure your first big book, you got to do this for women. He said because look at the difference. He we, we did us we did a deal at one of his uh, platinum groups, and he asked a very interesting question. The question was, it was you know probably fifty-fifty men women. He said, hey, I want to ask everybody. He Goes, I'm not saying it was really going to happen. I'm not saying that you were overly fearful or anything like this, but how many of you in the last three days have recognized a potentiality for violence? All the women raised their hand, right? All the women. And it surprised the women. Meaning they are so aware of it and yet they are so, they're given such lousy information on how to go about dealing for this. It was there. Where the guys, there were some guys that wrote it, not, you know, just because they happened to be in a situation where somebody got aggressive with them or something, but it was minuscule compared to the women because they're constantly aware of it. I mean, you and I were in a elevator and, you know, some guy gets in the elevator you and I probably don't give it much thought for the most part. I mean, you know, if the guy's a monster or something, some huge dude or something, yeah, you might, you know, wow, it's a big guy or something, or you might think that. Women, it's every single time they find themselves in a situation like that, when they walk to their car, when a strange man approaches them or anything like that, they absolutely understand the, the, the potentiality for violence.
0: Yeah, for guys, the bar is higher, right? Yeah. It has to be like, has anybody in your, been directly in your face yelling and pushing you in the last three days is what that means to us as men. Well, and the
1: problem with us, this is where it can go horribly wrong for men is we've been raised with this locker room violence, this, uh, kind of, uh, you know, territorial, uh, on the alpha, alpha chest in the room, chest bumping yeah. stuff. And, and so it's, uh, you know, I almost like play violence. And so we have to navigate at times, many times that the fatal problem is guys respond thinking it's that type of violence when it's actually You know, disproportionate. It's going to be the response is going to be, you know, disproportionate to what they think it's going to be. They think they're in there for a fist fight, you know, and just, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you good thumping. And this guy's slipping the knife out, you know, because he's just decided that's just the way it's going to go today. He doesn't feel like competing with you. He's just going to stab you. People don't recognize those cues. And that's where I get, you know, that's where a lot of great combat sport athletes, unfortunately, you know, I have tons of, of articles of combat sport athletes being murdered because they didn't recognize that situation. It's there, and you know we lost some really good guys because they didn't recognize, you know, there are people that'll just do it because they want to.
0: Hey man, I wanna take a quick break for a second here and tell you something super interesting happening here at AOC. If you've been listening for a while, you've heard our alumni talk about our live programs and you know how they work and that they literally change lives. What I've been noticing is how many of our guys are coming to Art of Charm not because they want to get better, but because they have to get better. Let's be real here. Being an extraordinary man is not just a nice-to-have, not anymore. Now being exceptional is a necessity. And this is true for tons of reasons. The new economy, we got to be dialed in, we got to hustle to get what we want. Meanwhile, great women are getting harder to find, very, very hard to keep, of course, and real authenticity is the only way to cut through the BS of online dating, or networking, or job interviews, or relationship development, and at the end of the day, we know deep down that our lives need to be in our hands if we're gonna be successful. So if there's a part of you that feels like you've hit your limit, that you've hit a plateau, you're not getting the results you want, I wanna tell you this, you're not alone. You're like the thousands of guys who've realized that becoming a better man is no longer a luxury, but a requirement. I was one of those guys. That's why I wanna see if the Art of Charm can help you achieve your goals. What we teach is not just gravy. This is the meat and potatoes, the real substantive stuff that will literally change your life. I'd love to hear from you. Call or email me. I'm jordan at theartofcharm.com. Connect with me anywhere, and we'll talk about how to get you moving forward. Now, back to the show. Sure. Society's evolved in quite a different way. I remember watching a, like a gangster documentary, and they're interviewing all these OGs from like the 70s and 80s. Right. And they're like, yeah, how come, you know, kids nowadays are ma- not making it to age 30, but here you are, you're like 63 or whatever, or 55 or whatever. He was like, you know, around our parents' age, how come you guys are all still kicking around? And he's like, back in my day, you know, you beef with the wrong guy, you'd get your butt kicked and then you'd be walking around the next day. And if it was particularly bad, you'd be walking around with a limp for a couple of days. But now they just shoot right. you. And he's like, we never did that. He's like, me and my friends, we didn't even carry guns. Yep. It was never a thing. But now it's like, you just happen to be standing next to a guy that somebody doesn't like, and you're dead. Well, mean. yeah.
1: Before you have the urge to respond in kind to, you know, the guy cuts you off on the road, you're going to go buy a flip moth, or it says a smart-ass remark to you, and you're about to give it back to him. You know, would you communicate with that guy if you knew he was literally, he's just looking, you're the straw that's going to break the camel's back, and he's going to be on that shooting spree. How would you conduct yourself? And it's a much easier way. You're much more pleasant. You are much more forgiving and it's actually a much more peaceful life. You don't engage in the, in the things you don't have to engage in. Right. Yeah. So it's not the hypervigilance that most people that I like, I'm looking for action. No, you're actually. You're giving everybody the absolute most amount of space as you can. You don't want to give them a reason. If they aggressively do something that doesn't really put your life at danger, doesn't threaten you imminently, but is aggressive, you know, they've, they've done something aggressively, you can usually disarm them by just, you know, just say, hey, sorry about that or whatever, or backing off, rather than meeting aggressive with aggression. Because oftentimes we don't understand that it's not our social group. You can't pick them out. But, you know, they're going to respond very differently than if you were dealing with somebody within your social group who's used to the chest bumping.
0: Got it, okay. Interesting, yeah, that's a good point. Giving people a ton of leeway and a ton of space. Because you do see this happen where, like, guys are talking a bunch of smack at, at a bar and then it sort of either de-escalates or one guy, it's like, it just gets too real and the other guy's like, okay, man, calm down. Because you're like, oh, wait, we're not just, like, trying to impress chicks right now. You're actually going to flip out slash you are flipping out, that's not where we wanted this to go. Like, one guy's a frat guy and the other guy's a gangster. Right. Right? And, and it's hard to tell who's who until it's pretty
1: much too late. Right. And, and that's where young guys really, I mean, the, the more young guys I can get in front of, the better. Because, you know, it's a really tough time to navigate. 18 to 26, you know, I find is, is really the key year. So I can get you past 26 for the most part. know, yeah, that's not everybody, but for the most part, the more I can do this. I had a very good incident in my life that helped me when I was, you know, just 19. That was my uh, my wake up call.
0: What happened? I, I went to
1: USC in, in uh, LA, and I was coming home. It was my beginning of my sophomore year, and I lived off campus with my uh, roommate. We had these little bungalows. It's right across from, uh, if anybody knows LA, it's uh, the Shrine Auditorium it's right by there. They, they used to do a lot of the, the Oscars and stuff like that back in the 80s and 90s because cheap rent for us. you know. That's why we were there. It wasn't really a bad neighborhood. It was kind of close to Fraternity Row, but it wasn't the greatest neighborhood. You know, I mean, USC is literally right in the middle. And back then, it really was in the middle of, you know, like training day territory. Um, and... I came home. I was, you know, I was riding my bike. Actually, I had a 10 speed bike. I I still remember it was this Peugeot bike that I just loved back then because, you know, uh, those were the type of bikes that were popular. And um, I heard my phone ringing in the house. You know, a lot of your listeners are going to go, what do you mean a phone ringing in the house? Why didn't you have your cell phone? You know, we didn't have cell phones. The phone's ringing in the house. I hear it. I go up. There's like a little porch. I just throw my bike up on the porch, not really thinking, go in the house, answer my phone. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to my friend on the phone, and I hear this rustling out on the porch. And, you know, I go to check it out. Sure enough, two guys had had ripped my bike off, and they were running down the street. They had it. They were, like, running with it because I had a lock on it, but they were, you know, running with it with one of the tires up and still able to make it move. So the back tire was locked, but the front tire was free, and they were just basically running with it. They were going to cut the lock later. They had a pretty good lead on me. I start running again, you know, running after them. And so I go over one street. I go over two streets. They start going down this other street. I start running down and I noticed that, you know, the street lights, it was dusk and the street lights really weren't covering too much. And I realized everything hit me nonverbally. It was the craziest thing. It almost literally stopped me in my tracks as I'm running. And everything in my body was nonverbally screaming at me that it stopped. Just stop, get the hell out of there. And I saw those guys, and they were probably like a block up ahead, and they just kind of stopped and looked back at me. You know, everything realized, I'm entering a place. I have no idea where the hell I'm at. I know what type of neighborhood that my college you know, is around, my university is around. And I've heard about real problems. I'm literally running here down the street after two guys that I have no idea where they live, who they are, if they have weapons or not. And for what? You know, a bike. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. that's where it was like a game changer for me. And that's where I kind of started putting things in perspective. You know, I, I, just, I just realized there are things you need to react to and things weren't. I was stupid. Now, I'm not saying that you just let people take your things. But the problem was you know, a lot of guys would not have recognized the danger they were willingly putting themselves into. And I'm not exaggerating, if you saw the movie Training Day, it was those types of neighborhoods.
0: Wow, yeah, exactly, you you stopped early, but it's kind of a the literal line versus the metaphorical line where you're thinking, man, I catch this kid, I'm gonna kick his ass, and you know, he's gonna walk home with a limp, that little punk stealing what? my bike and then you cross over into you know, East Palo Alto or whatever, depending on, you know, choose your wrong side of the tracks of choice, and then suddenly it's like, no, you're not coming back because you just chased a kid back into the, the hornet's nest.
1: Yeah, and it's not my world. That's the other thing I quickly realized. You know, um, Kind of what we were talking about is you got two different, completely different types of cultures. Imagine somebody coming from, say, hardcore East L.A. gang area, And they come into a completely, you know, like a La Jolla area in San Diego. And, you know, they just infiltrate that area. And they realize, oh, my God, this is just easy pickings from the way they look at the world. Sure.
0: You know, you stop to ask somebody for directions in East Detroit. They don't look at you. They don't talk to you. But if you're from Troy, Michigan, and, you are you know, that person goes to Troy, Michigan, everybody would be like, sure, yeah, I'll take you there. Follow me. Let's walk through this alley together. You're probably not going to stab me. Why would that happen?
1: And it's just a differentiation in how cultures look at certain acts. And when they come together, the potentiality of violence, if you do not understand the cues and you don't understand some of the risks that you're running into, it it can go horribly wrong for you.
0: So what about learning self-defense systems and things like that, like martial arts, MMA, watching those videos, all the stuff I did when I was like 14 through... I guess, 17, or 13 through 17, taking karate, you know, that kind of stuff. Is that a good
1: way to learn self defense? It's a good way for awareness. I'm not one of these guys that, uh, you know, I've been training for almost 40 years, and I've been teaching professionally for 25. And I've seen everything. I've seen, I, I come from a martial arts background originally. The issue is not whether or not it's good or bad, it's like, you really have to ask yourself, what are you training for? if you are training in a martial art for a certain type of a competition or something, that's absolutely legitimate. And using the protocols and the legacy of how the the system was taught and in and of itself, you know, for that reason is, is extremely fine. It's no, it's noble. You know, you want to learn, you know, say you're taking Taekwondo and you want to learn to be the best Taekwondo practitioner possible because you, you know, you want to compete and you want to do all those things. That's great. The idea is, okay, when I want to take that and translate it to somebody who just wants to use violence, you know, how well does that training serve me? And the way I try to illuminate for everybody is the gold standard right now to the general public, you know, is is the UFC. And I say this with, you know, literally living right across the street. I'm living in the home of the UFC. I love it. I love watching it. I have a lot of friends that compete. I don't mean this in a bad way at all. But what makes the UFC so great is it has 31 rules currently. Of those 31 rules, 27 of those rules are about injury to the human body. You can't have a competition if you have injury to the human body, which is real violence, meaning truly trying to shut that down. And so that tells you a lot right then and there. You You have essentially, anybody who's trained solely in MMA in that aspect, under those rules and those guidances, has taken out 27 of the, most, of the effective, most effective ways to hurt someone. Yeah. The idea of taking a guy to the ground when two of his buddies are there kicking your head in as you're doing it, you're probably going to get the choke. You're probably going to choke the guy out that you have in your hands. The problem is it's multiples. I mean, the basic gangbanger thing is the sacrificial lamb. They send, you know, three guys, they send one guy in to tie the, the guy up, the victim up. So the other two guys can come in and take them out. And, you know, if you don't train in those protocols and you're not aware of those protocols, it doesn't mean that uh, it's just knowledge you don't have. Uh, you know, my competition days are way over. I mean, I keep myself in good shape and, you know, I still, you know, I love training stuff. But, but I have a lot of guys that are top, top competitors. If I got in and had to play that game, if I had to go in to some of my buddies that are top jiu-jitsu practitioners and I had to go in against them, they'd kick my ass. Mm-hmm. They choke me out under those things. MMA, same thing. You know, they're they're much better practitioners of that than me. But when it comes to violence, everybody's fifty fifty. It comes down to who is the first person to get the injury on the other guy, and that's usually the person that walks away. And it doesn't take what you think. If we had to be bigger, faster, and stronger as a species, we would not exist. If that's what made us dangerous, if that's what we had to be, you just take any like uh, I, you know, I tell people all the time, hey. Who wants to be thrown in a cage with a 40 pound mountain lion that hasn't eaten for a day? Not, yeah, of course. It's just, you know, so the animal species is so much, you know, bigger, faster and stronger than us. What makes us dangerous is our brain and intent. And it's that intent to do harm that you can never outlaw. They can't ban the intent. Because that's what makes a human being dangerous. And there are human beings out there that are the best people in the world at doing violence to other human beings. And I mean murdering people with their bare hands. The best people in the world have zero training in combat sports or martial arts. They all reside in the prison systems.
0: That's, yeah, exactly. And and
1: that's just it. And what they have is they have intent. And they have on-the-job training. And they look for results. They're very results-oriented. They learn by trial and error over the years, hey, what works and what doesn't work. And it's all basically injury-based. They study anatomy. I mean, some of the most chilling stuff you'll see is when you I have i have tape of a top guy in the Aryan Brotherhood and a top guy in the uh, Mexican Mafia. And they both talk about using violence as a currency. And they both talk about how they look at it and how they train for it. And what they do, and it's very specific, it has nothing to do with competition, it has nothing to do with fairness, it has nothing to do with anything other than just getting results. And it's extremely simple. You know, this information is not rocket science information. The difficult part is how can I sit there and, and, you know, I know the best information for survival for us, you know, for, for my people is going to come from the worst part of society. So now how can I pull it out of context for you? Put it in the right context to say, Hey, when would I ever do something like this? You know, when would I ever need to know the skill set? And, you know, giving the right scenarios to people is is the most important thing. You know, how you, how you do that with people. It just to me is the challenge and it's what keeps the passion in me for putting this information out because, you know, I want people to understand, you know, two things. My goal when, when people come to, to train with me or come to see me, my goal is twofold. One, I want them to understand. You know, violence is really, really the answer. You know, and everybody loves that part, you know, that part of the tagline. And then it says dot, dot, dot. But when it is the answer, it's the only answer. So it's a twofold goal. I spend time making sure that you totally understand what you don't have to participate in, what type of antisocial aggression, stuff that you probably would want to respond with because your ego gets hurt. I take you through that, that area. Then I show you if you choose to go there. And you have to actually protect yourself. Here's what it takes to survive, you know, somebody that's really coming after you. And it's a twofold effect. Most people only like to talk in the industry. They love to talk about the violence is really the answer. And they'll give you all sorts of scenarios. Don't do this. Don't do that. They basically scare you to death to ever when you'd ever want to take action.
0: Sure.
1: I think that's a huge disservice because it causes a citizen to be completely fearful of, you know, being prosecuted if they try to protect themselves. And that's just not the case. It's that rare incident when information like this would ever be useful to you, you know. And what's so great about that is if you can truly delineate when this information would ever be useful to you, you realize that 99% of the things that used to upset you no longer upset you. You have a very clear idea of when violence would ever be useful to you in any way, shape, or form. And until that time, you know, you have a very clear understanding of how to conduct your life. And that's just it. I have found that the people that are the most skilled at this subject, and really understand it, live full, fun lives. They're not morbid people that go around hardcore all the time, chest lumping, looking for action. They actually want to maximize their time. And that's that's my goal. I I don't advocate violence. You know, people get that right away. They go, no, no, this isn't, this is just showing you. The injury data that is the most useful to us because it's all been quantified is sports injury data. And the reason we use sports injury data is because that is data of humans colliding with humans and humans colliding with the planet. And those are injuries that you and I can replicate. We have the ability to use those forces, whereas a lot of times when you get injury data, it comes from, you know, areas like, uh you know, car crashes and stuff. And those are forces that you and I can't replicate. Right. So people don't know how to do that. So that's where we originally got all our initial data on what areas of the human body that keep showing up in sports injury data, you know, time and time again. And, you know, there's the obvious things like the eyes, the throat, the groin area, um, ankles, knees. You know, stuff like that. And then there's a, the kind of more esoteric things like the lower margin of the rib cage where you have large organs behind like the liver, the spleen, and the kidneys, um, a very susceptible part of the rib cage that you can uh, put trauma into. There's other areas that have, you know, nerve strikes that you can do to people with the goal is... You know, striking the nerve is not really, I call it a transitory injury, meaning it can deaden an area of the human body. You know, if you strike somebody extremely hard on the radial nerve, like on your, the top of your forearm, you know, kind of uh, on the thumb side of your forearm there, it's going to be very hard for somebody to use their hand and grip. Right. Um, th- things like that. And so it's knowledge like that that we give people. And we don't ask you to believe a damn thing that we say. We show you the data. We show you numerous incidents, either sports inc- incident of somebody having that injury put on them or unfortunately an act of violence where somebody is being attacked, murdered and uh, that area of the human body is being attacked and you can see how vulnerable it is. And what's interesting in sports, you know, especially when I show like all the MMA files that are out there, you've got two highly conditioned guys going at it and then an injury occurs and everything stops, meaning no matter how... An injury is defined as breaking a sensory system or a structure of the human body so that it no longer works on the individual, at least during the encounter. And what I mean by that is there's some trauma that obviously, you know, it's going to have a long recovery if you can recover for it. Things like if you break somebody's ankle, that's going to be a recovery. That's going to take time. If I strike you to the solar plexus, and that's all that happens, all things being equal, meaning you don't have any, you know, heart murmurs or anything like that that would trigger an arrhythmia or anything. If I'm just striking you the solar plexus, that's just going to cause you to seize up uh, your breathing. It's going to be difficult for you to breathe for a little bit. But in a couple of minutes, you're going to be able to breathe normally again. And so it's just a definition when you go through the human body on what areas get you a result.
0: It is completely different from sort of the competition slash martial martial artsy slash like ego slug it out wrestle around for a while get tired and have a beer type of type of violence.
1: Yeah, it's, it's very akin. Uh, in, but I try to use the firearms analogy, meaning nobody trains in firearms, you know, with the idea you don't sit there and get aggressive at the target, you know, you don't you don't sit there and make angry faces at the target, yell at the target, challenge the target. You sit there and you learn, you know, basically that you know slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and meaning you get all your movement patterns down. And the information that we share with our our clients is akin to firearms training, meaning you know it is not to be used to shut somebody up. It's not be used to you know quote unquote fight. Um, it literally is used that when you you have no option, you're devoid of option. I mean, it's very easy to tell people. You know, they just say, "Well, when would I ever use? How do I know when I need to use this?" And it's really that idea of being devoid of choice. If you have choice any step of the way, and you choose to use violence, it's most likely the wrong time to use violence, and extremely risky for you legally.
0: Right. It's when you have no choice but to use violence.
1: Yeah, you're devoid of choice, and that's and so it makes it very you'll know immediately. I, I just there are a lot of people that may have made a whole career out of these lists of people that they're supposed to know. Prior to whether or not to take action, you know, they, they go through these checklists, which are absolutely ridiculous, you know, um, and the only person paying attention to the checklist are you, you know, where the other guy, his only focus is on, you know, direct harm to you, right? Bodily harm to you.
0: Yeah. It goes back to your earlier statement that violence is really the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And last but not least, you, you know, you and I talked offline, I thought this is really, this is really interesting that you'd use the same phrase. Uh, you say, people will sink to the level of their training rather than rise to the occasion when facing violence. It's a, it's actually exactly the same in social situations, dating situations. People think, like, no, when I see this person that I need to make a connection with or this girl that I'm interested in or, you know, this person that's important to my, to my business, I'm gonna do this, 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 and then this. And then it happens, and they're like... Uh, I'm gonna go get another drink, go to the bathroom, go home. I'm tired. She probably has a boyfriend. There's a million different excuses that run through your mind, and then often they'll call us after that if if that's what they're looking for. But it's the exact same thing in any kind of violent situation. People think like, no, when this happens, you know, I'm gonna like sprint towards the guy and like go balls out, and I'm totally gonna remember all that stuff I learned eight years ago from that YouTube video about the rear naked choke and. I'm gonna take that guy down, it's gonna be awesome. But then when it really happens, they're like, holy crap, I gotta get out of here. And it's just fight or flight, and they're shaking like a leaf, deer in headlights, and then they, if they muster any courage, it's usually to run, or just do something stupid that's gonna make things worse. Nobody ever jumps into Batman mode and then surprises themselves, am I right?
1: Yeah, that's just it. You know, like you have to familiarize yourself with this stuff. You have to be trained. Now, for a lot of people that'll sit there and tell you, ah, you gotta do years and years and years of training. Well, if that was true, then none of the guys in prison would be scary. You know, they don't have years and years of training. You know, they just do it. And the scary part for us is that we absolutely have the ability to do this. You know, we are we are survivors. Our predecessors were the people that were extremely good at doing violence to protect themselves. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean it from a survival sense, you know, that we're there. So we are actually very good and, and up until about a hundred years ago, it was expected, you know, mostly of males, you know, you were responsible for your own self protection. It was not, you, know, you weren't waiting for the police. You weren't waiting for anybody. First and foremost, you had to you know protect yourself, especially if you were successful you know, to protect your assets and do everything. I mean, the the, the class of of guys that I normally, you know, talk to entrepreneurs and people like that, you know, and and a lot of type A huge, you know, guys, they would be the most competent at self-protection because they have the most to lose. And and they'd be really good. We've lost that. We've outsourced that in the last 50 years because of societal abuse on violence. And quite honestly, here in the U.S., because we've been so effective, like a very, you know, for the most part, a very safe environment, that we don't have to, you know, be be thinking about, you know, protecting ourselves, you know, in a very real sense from political uh, situations or, you know, um, a, a lot of the things that other countries have to face day in and day out. Um, so our awareness of violence is very slow. But what was really interesting, Jordan, is I've trained a lot of different groups. Uh, I've trained traders at the New York Merck Exchange. Those guys are hardcore traders and and, you know, they're making... Decisions left and right. And their biggest problem is when they get paralyzed, when they get, you know, paralysis by analysis, kind of what you're talking about with the guys that are going to go in and execute the dating. What they found with this type of training that I'm talking about is you become the cause, meaning we constantly tell people nothing happens until you take action. You know, until I actually get my first injury, I'm, I'm not in control. You know, I have no control over the situation. I might think about things that I'm going to do, but I'm going to sink to that level. If I haven't actually gone out there and traded, you know, today, or I haven't gone out and approached a woman that I was interested in, or... If I haven't sat there and said, you know what, uh, I'm out here on the mat and I just learned these three different targets and I'm really learning how to use the right body part to step through, strike that target. And it's, it's a profile that I see time and time again. And I'm bored with that. I've seen knives come at me. I've seen guns come at me. I've trained for this. These are not unfamiliar things to me. Unless you've really done that, not talked about it, actually gone out there and trained like you said, you're gonna to sink to that level. That's what a lot of people just don't understand. And and that's why it's a twofold apart with me, especially when it comes to violence. Because see, if you screw up and you don't get that girl, okay. They can give you a call, they can work on their, their information, and they can get back. My people, if they don't recognize the potentiality for asocial violence and the fact that they have to take action, they're gonna face grievous bodily harm. Yeah. So what's great is the decision making chain that works in the life or death scenario, works even better at, you know, much lesser threat levels, you know, where you're just having business issues, social issues, or something like that. So it's a great training ground. You can actually transfer a lot of it. And that wasn't me. That was a a thing that my clients taught me. When I got outside the military and law enforcement, started doing a lot of uh, high-end corporate clients and, and really interesting individuals and entrepreneurs, they came back and told me how useful the actual physical training and decision-making process of how to put injury in the human body, they were able to translate back into their work and actually be more effective, more proactive in a lot of uh, a, a lot of the business and social things that they were doing.
0: So how do we start to train that? I mean, you say that we can use media to train our brains, that we can just go about our daily lives and start applying this stuff without actually hurting people. How do we do that in a, in a practical way?
1: The easiest way to start is, it's gonna be an adjustment, and for most people, It'll be difficult uh, at first. We get so caught up in the story that we don't give ourselves permission when we see an act of violence to search for what's effective. So the task that I'm going to ask people to do is anytime you see an act of violence in the media, and it can be something horrific, it does not mean that you condone the act of violence that's going on. What I need you to do is I need you to see where did the person – who won the encounter, was able to successfully use the tool of violence, what did they do? Where did the first injury happen? And then notice how it ended up. And that is useful information for your brain to know, meaning, oh, look, the guy struck the person here and got a result. Then he did another strike and got another result and got another result. You start seeing that just like the knife to the side of the neck works you take away the story, you take away the context, and you're looking for what is useful, what actually works. And the more you do that, the more you inoculate yourself from the victim mindset. Because normally what happens is when we look at an act of violence, we empathize with the victim because we want to be good people. And we try to work the problem from the victim's standpoint, how the victim could have countered their way out of it or, or blocked their way out of it. Mm-hmm. What we have to understand is when predators are shown acts of violence, and I'm currently in my book, I'm interviewing these types of individuals. Whenever they're shown a successful act of violence, they never see themselves from the victim's standpoint. They will sit there and they'll look at the act of violence, and whoever's successful will say, "Yeah, that was good. Okay, yeah, yeah, I get that. That was that was good use of violence. You know, that was a good." They won't say it that eloquently, but they'll say, "Oh, that was that was good," or they'll say, "Yeah, that was okay, but I would have done it this way." They never in their head see themselves being on the receiving end of violence. They never see themselves as the victim. And that is their greatest advantage. That is why they're able, if they have to use violence, they're able to be so quick. And my clients, when they start to start this process, it's extremely uncomfortable at first. But when they quickly start to realize, hey, I'm not condoning what's going on here. I'm trying to learn from this. I'm trying to see how violence works. It is just a tool. You know, um, that is probably the greatest gift I can give everybody because that's the mind shift that that starts and it keeps you from being that victim. So it's absolutely I get it, it's absolutely controversial. People that have experienced violence understand exactly what I'm talking about. The book that I'm coming with really got kind of delves into this this mindset, and this is something that does not make you one of them. It completely objectivizes violence and shows you stuff that's useful, you know, when when would you ever need to use it? Because the big problem we have right now, Jordan, is we've stigmatized the study of violence to the point to where the only part of society that it's available to are those predators. Right, sure. If I had to say, you know, my ultimate mission is to tell everybody, hey, it's okay to look at this, you know, it's okay to look at this because, you're going to know when you would ever need to use this information. But the horrible thing is if you have nothing in the toolbox when you're facing a situation like this, you know, it, it's just awful, you know, and it completely changes your life.
0: Excellent. Good stuff here to, to keep in mind, to practice, and to, to hopefully recall in the moment, uh, not rising to the level of occasion, but through practice, default to the level of our
1: training. Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your people.
0: Excellent. Thanks so much, Tim.
1: Thanks so much, because I know this is a this is a different subject and I, I appreciate you taking a risk.
0: Yeah, my pleasure, man. Take care. Thank you. You're Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. It's really it, it is true. Violence is rarely the answer, but when it is, it's the only answer. I love the fact that small sort of one percent, ten percent little tweaks can actually save your life. Realizing these things, I didn't tell my kidnapping story here, but you guys have heard it on the show before. It's these little realizations that violence is real, that violence is gonna happen, that violence is something that now is within my hands to prevent, control, et cetera. These are the things that will save your life. So I hope this goes a long way with you. I hope that you enjoyed this show. And of course, this show is a fanarchy, which means it's run by you. I need you guys. And if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed it, Don't forget to thank Tim on Twitter. We're going to have that linked up in the show notes as well. Our live program details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Please subscribe in iTunes. Write us a nice review. We've got our iPhone and Android apps as well for those of you that like those. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.